We are continuing our um, look at wisdom. We are looking at, last week we looked at rest, and today we are going to be looking at work. Oftentimes we look at work and rest, but we decided to change things up and with you. So a survey on yougov.uk.org asks the question, um, would you rather have a job you hate that pays well or a job you love that pays poorly? So um, 1,133 British workers were asked this, and this is the following information that we, re we got from the website, is that the public overwhelmingly pl um, plummeted for passion over pay, with two-thirds, 64%, saying that they would rather have a poorly paid job they loved compared to just 18% who preferred a well-paid job um, a well-paid job over one they hated. So I wonder if that's you today. I wonder when it comes to work, what are your thoughts concerning that? Going back to the survey here of those 1,300 people, it says that um, 45%, which is close to half, said that they actually liked their jobs that they were doing, and 17% said they were lucky they had found the job that they loved. And a further one five, which is 20%, said they neither liked nor loved their job. When it comes to work, oftentimes we put people in boxes, and so we're meeting people, it says, hey, how are you doing? What do you do for a job? And so we often want to find out what people are. Sometimes we define who we are by the job that we do. Now, with ladies, you sometimes are a bit different, I've noticed. Um, after 22 years of marriage, I've, I've noticed a couple things, is that sometimes with ladies, they don't just ask about jobs, they ask about relationships. You know, are you married, you're single, you have children. Um, but sometimes we always go back to the job. So work is something sometimes we like. We often talk about having rest from it. But today, what I want us to do is look from a biblical perspective about work. I do not have all the answers about work, nor will I get into all the scriptures about work um, either. But I want us to start off with a biblical overview, looking to see what the Bible actually says about work. So the first thing we need to know is that God is a worker. The fact that um, God calls work is important and gives it an, a value. As you may be familiar with, as far as the scriptures start off in Genesis with God working and then tells a story about him resting on the seventh day. The opening line in the Bible starts off, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase heavens and earth, basically, um, in case you aren't very caught up on your Hebrew idioms, um, that basically means from top to bottom. That means everything. So that he created everything in the beginning, God created it. Now Genesis 1-2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Now, going doing some research for, for this, um, I'm going to drop some of my knowledge here, which I just got it, so I, I'm happy to share with you. Sometimes you have speakers or preachers that talk about the different Greek words. Well, since we're in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you the Hebrew word for, um, for, for, em, for formless and empty. And the Hebrew phrase is actually a poetic phrase, and it's tohu babohu. So the world was tohu ba-bohu, um, and so basically what that means is empty and void, but sometimes um, that translators and scholars are looking more that it is wild and uninhibited. So basically, God worked for six days and took this wild uninhibited and formed it and filled it. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 2. 
Um, it says that by the seventh day that God had finished his work and that doing so, he rested and he delighted in it. And Jez spoke a little bit about that last week. Now, doing the research for today, I read this guy named John Mark Comer, and he says that in between the opening and the closing paragraph, the narrative is filled with metaphor after metaphor for who God is and what God is like. That God, in the midst of taking of the formless um, I forgot the other phrase there, formless and empty, that God is a designer, that God is an artist, that God, God is a creative, that he's an engineer, that he's a builder, that he's a zoologist, he's an expert in horticulture, he's a shepherd, he's a king, and above all, that he is a worker. That is who God is. God is a worker. So the second thing is to make sure that we see it from a biblical perspective is that, that God created people to be his co-workers. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but actually the Bible was not written in a vacuum. That the story that we read in Genesis isn't the only creation story that was going around um, at that time in the, in the ancient Near East. The most popular one is actually from Babylon, um, which some people says is cultural epicenter of antiquity there. And that in the stories that they have is that the, uh, their creation story is that all the gods were tired of work. And so they went to the chief god, which is Marduk, and said, you know what? You need to do something about this. So Marduk, the king of the gods, decided that he came up with a great plan. He's going to outsource all the work to someone else, and that someone else would be humanity. Now, Marduk's line basically was this um, translation to several languages to English, and it says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. He shall be, changed with, he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. You see, the basic idea of that the humanity is coming to do all the work and the gods are going to be at the ease is a common part of creation myths of that day. That work was a burden and that gods were tired, and it was beneath them to do anything for humanity. So they created cheap labor. But in comparison to other creation myths, Genesis is actually shocking. You see, what happens is that this God, the true creator God, is nothing like the other gods, nothing like Marduk. God does not hate work. In fact, he likes it. If you remember back to the beginning of the story, if he worked six days there creating it, he created man and then rested. So um, we as humanity are not created for, che- for, for cheap labor, but we are created as co-laborers. Now you wonder, wonder, where am I getting this? Well, you know what? I'm getting it from Genesis chapter 127. So what it says is that God created us in the Imago Dei, which is Latin, or the image of God. It says this in 127. So God created in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, let's go back to that Hebrew because I'm so good at it. So the word for image here is um, selim. Now, this is often, if you see it in other ways, it's the word idol or statue. So what it's saying here is that we are God's statues. Now, I don't know if that reminds you, but as Christians, you may have heard before that we're a small Christ, that we are supposed to be reflective of who Christ is. So just like we as Christians are reflective of who Christ is, that we as humanity are reflected, 
reflections of him as well. Now, because of sin, because where we've turned our own ways and said, forget you, God, I'm going to live where I want to, that our reflections are a bit distorted. But if we go back and look at the basis of all humanity, since we are reflections of God and that he's a working God, then we should be workers too. And it's one of those things that it doesn't matter if we want to or not. That's who the character of God is. And so he has made us that as well. So if we look in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, we have Paul, and he's talking to the Corinthian church. Now, this is the New Testament. So um, he's, writing to, he's writing, and he says that his friend, Apollos, and him are both strategically working. And so what they're doing is, is that Paul says that I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God makes it grow. Now, this whole idea of watering and planting and growing is an image that any first century Jew would have seen that first century people would have seen that this is a part of work. So, so far what we've talked about this is that God is a worker and that God created people as co-workers. And the third thing I want to bring in here that needs to know about as far as the biblical overview is this, is that the Bible does not differentiate between secular and sacred work. Now, what happens is... But these are two different categories that for some reason has come into our mind. Well, I'll explain exactly why they come into our mind here in a second. But the idea behind this sacred and secular is that there's certain parts of your life that you're doing for God. And so that's sacred. And then everything else is you're not doing for God. But the difficulty with this definition is that the majority of life is secular. So just think for a second, just over this past week, how much time did you spend reading God's Word, spending time praying, spending time sharing with other people, um, dashing around doing different things? Maybe we can even say secular for those people who actually rearrange the, the chairs in here. Maybe 3%, 4% of your time? Well, let's say 4%. Then that means it's 96% is secular. But the thing about it is this, is that God is involved and interested in every part of you, in everything that you do. It's not just those things when we think we're really close to God because we're doing things for Him, but the way we live our lives is important to Him. So God's world is not just meaningless and pointless if we're not actually just doing things directly related to God, but living our life for God is not broken into sacred or secular. Also, newsflash, life is not about all, all about the glamorous things either. That if you have, get married and you have children, then sometimes you just feel like life is about surviving. That's, that starts off as far as changing night, nappies, which is just awful, to doing just random, boring things such as mowing the back garden. So if you have that FOMO, the fear of missing out, that your best life or everybody's life looks like Instagram, it's not. It's work, it's rest. Everyone has mundane lives, but it's in the midst of mundane lives that we can see God working. When it comes to the word spiritual, I think back to a wise Spaniard with a sweet mustache from the 80s movie that says, I don't think that means what you think that means. I guess you're wondering if the Princess Bride is what I'm talking about. So a person would say a word, and the guy would say, I don't think that word means what you think that word means. So I think the word spiritual is the same way. 
that when it comes to spiritual, we think it means a certain thing, like my spiritual life. But if we look from a biblical perspective, we really don't have that. You see, if you looked up the word spiritual from Genesis to Malachi, in case you don't know that's all the Old Testament, it's not in there. And the reason why is because there's not a difference between your spiritual or your secular life. That if you look in Leviticus, Leviticus is, means law or teaching. And you know, if you look there in Leviticus, they got tons of laws, tons of teaching. In fact, I wrote some stuff down here. So Leviticus instructs you on how to purify yourself before you go to the temple. It tells you um, how to wash your hands. It tells you before you make a sacrifice. Then it tells you what type of animal you can sacrifice. Then it tells you if you have money, what kind of animal you can buy. And if you don't have money, what kind of animal you can buy. And so on and so forth. But it doesn't say a single thing about being spiritual. When it comes to Jesus, my guess would be this. If somehow you were having tea with Jesus, and you ask him about his spiritual life, he would just look at you. What do you mean spiritual? You see, all of life is the same. There's not a spiritual, there's not a sacred. That God wants to be involved in every part of our life. Now, where did this whole idea of spiritual come along? The whole sacred and non-sacred? Well, we can all go back to Plato and, and philosophers at the time. That they were trying to have a dichotomy between um, flesh and non-flesh. And so, because of their influence on Western Europe, then that's just that idea of spiritual, non-spiritual, sacred, um, and secular has, has come into our mindsets. And even in the Middle Ages, it was taught by the church that if you worked in the church, then you were um, sacred. If you worked outside the church, then you were secular. But basically what that's what said, if you were a monk or a nun or a priest, that was the only way that you could actually work for God. And so the idea back then, which came into our culture, was this. In order for God to really love me, I've got to work hard. And so you would work your normal life, and then all the extra time you would devote to God. But what I want to propose to each and every one of us is this. As we look at the biblical um, overview is what you do matters to God. Your job matters to God. Your job as a carpenter matters to God. God's love for you doesn't change. God's call in your life doesn't change if you're a carpenter or jazz in full-time ministry. It's the same because God's called you to those things. The, the, the thing to think about is how are you living your life out in those things? You see, and you don't have to be sharing about Jesus the entire time, but your life should be distinctively different the way um, that um, Mr. Lee is, Andy, Lady Lee's husband, um, um, way Andy works, there should be something distinctly different about whenever he does carpentry than a person who doesn't know Christ. Now, I can't say the same about Jess, so hopefully all people who are ministers um, should look the same, but they don't always look the same. But no matter what your job is, that there should be a distinctiveness about you. Because God is a God of work, and He wants you to use your gifts and talents for His glory, and that does not necessarily mean that you're a full-time paid Christian worker, but because we're all full-time ministry, because that's the definition of ministry, is that's how we live out our life as Christians. But anyway, let's get back to the sermon. I kind of got off there. Okay, so let's be here. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do.
Um, so what happened is that in the Middle Ages, we had the whole idea we had secular and then we had sacred. But then there's a group of these radical guys and gals who came along, and they're called reformers. So what happened is during this couple of hundred years here is that they started thinking, you know what, that um, Peter talked about priesthood of the believer and that it's not just the priest who can get to God. Therefore, um, all of us have the ability to be before God. So if you're a mom, you are a priest. If you're a student, you're a priest. If you work for a nonprofit organization, you're a priest. If you work at a school, you're a priest. If you're a day laborer, you're a priest. In other words, that you're just as holy. You have the same status in God's eyes, no matter what you are doing as a profession. It just goes back to how you're living that life. Now, we got to think for Jesus here. He lived 33 years. He didn't start his ministry the last three years. Before then, he was a worker or a builder or a carpenter, as we would say. It was an ordinary job, non-glamorous, is what I hear a carpenter's life is. I don't know myself. But if, as a carpenter, wasn't below Jesus' standard as the Son of God, then why should it be below us if we're working as an accountant? Or let's look at Paul, who was a tent maker in order to be a church planner. Paul doesn't see his job as a distraction from his calling to the kingdom, but a vital part of it. Tent making wasn't below him as the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Then why should be below us? So we have university students here, one, two, three, four, five, six, or people who've recently graduated from university. There's more than six, actually. I miscounted. Um, so what happens is this. Whatever you have that passion for, whatever you feel God calling you to, don't think, oh, I shouldn't do that. We need to realize that God is calling all of us, wherever we are, to be reflections of who He is. Remember, we are, his Im we are made in His image. We are the Imago Dei. Now, just in case you're wondering, that's the first bit of our sermon, and we will quickly go to our last bit. And it's the significance of work. I'm just going to talk about why we work, and then we're going to hop on to, um, what is that? Proverbs. There we go. So why do we work? You know what? There's a variety of different reasons of why we work. But let's look back at the Bible. I'll give you one reason. You can tell me why you work. It could be bills. It could be I owe, I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. Those are all valid reasons. But let's look at Genesis chapter 2.15, and it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. So let's look at two specific ideas right here. And so what we have is that we're going to be looking at work and keep it. So the first word there, um, which I'd be happy to tell you what it is, but I think it's a bad. That is a bad in Hebrew. So I've, you've already learned three Hebrew words today. So a bad is the word here, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. Um, but it means service. So right here it says work or service, but the interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, 20%, that's one out of every five times, work is translated into service. So your work for God is your service for God. On Sunday morning, sometimes we talk about we're going to a worship service, but just let me remind you, guys and girls, men and women, is that the way we live our lives is worship. 
It's not just something that Lady Lee leads us in on Sunday morning, but it's something that we do. The next thing that we're looking at here is, um, doot, 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 there it is, is shamar. And that means, um, that's the word for keep, shamar. I'm so good at Hebrew. So anyway, what happens is usually translated as take care of, um, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, that's spot on. But it also means to protect, to watch over, to stand guard of creation. Oftentimes when I've thought about the guarding of Eden, I think it's all pristine lawns. Nice, you've got my little path you've got to walk on. When you're in France, it says, attention la pelouse. In other words, you have to don't actually walk on the grass because you're, not, you're just supposed to look at it. But when it comes down to it, it's more than that. That the Garden of Eden was a place of um, resources. Now, one thing I didn't get um, um, Tim to read is in Second Genesis chapter two, um, eight through fourteen. What happens? It talks. It, let me just read that quickly to you. It says, "Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put man where." whom he formed, and out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to guard to water the garden, and there divided among um, four rivers. The name of the first is um, Pison. It is the one that flows um, around the whole land of Havilah. Um, where there is gold, and the gold and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there. Um, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed um, around the whole land of Cush. Oh, good, you're reading with me, so maybe you can actually pronounce the names correctly. <laughs> um, and the name of the third is the Tigris, and it flows to Syria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Sometimes I, read, I try to read the Bible at least once through the entire year. Sometimes what happens is um, that I'll just kind of skip over this. Oh, like I read and I'm like, okay, I've read it and everything. But it didn't really trigger until this week until I actually read it. So what's happening here is that it's talking about all these raw materials that are right there in Eden. That humanity is to take raw materials and that Eden has potential, that Adam and Eve were there to help civilize it, that they are there to draw out the potential and to make it into, into things. That you as workers, wherever you are, can take potential in people and in, in, in items and make other items. That you are the one um, that can make a difference. Let me go ahead and give you a, a quick definition of work by Tim Keller. He says this, to put it this way, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So that's what work is. We want to help people to thrive and flourish, to get the very best that it's not taking advantage of the environment or wasting the environment, but it's taking what's there and making things that are better for life, making the environment better as well. N.T. Wright, which um, hopefully you know, put it this way. You have to understand the garden was dynamic, not static. Put another way, creation was a project, not a product. 
The garden was designed to go somewhere, and that's why we should work. We are designed to do something too, not just sit around and do nothing. Now, speaking of sitting around and doing nothing, let's get back to Proverbs, and this is going to be a quick little short thing here, looking at the sluggard and the ant. Interesting thing about the sluggard, that it is mentioned 14 times in the Old Testament, and it's only found in Proverbs. So, the Hebrew word, which I don't remember what it is, and I didn't write it down, basically it means is a person who's habitually lazy and inactive. So that's what a sluggard is. I don't know if you ever used that word or not. We all know what ants are like. So let me go ahead and give you some characteristics from this passage of what a sluggard is. I want to point these things out because we want to make sure we don't do these things. Or if we're doing these things, we want to stop doing these things. The first of all is that we have a sluggard is lazy. Four times here in Proverbs, it says that they are lazy. The sluggard, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Um, what happens is also, it says here, the slugger buries his hand in the dish, but does not bring it back to his mouth. In other words, that, of course, is a hyperbole, but he is so lazy, he can't even bother to actually feed himself. So, when it comes to work and the idea of the sluggers, you know what, I just can't be bothered. It's just too much for me. Next one here is that we look at is that they are irrational. And they're irrational because it says right here that the slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will not seek and um, he will seek a harvest and have nothing. That you can almost imagine that it's harvest time. He goes to the field and he's like, well, how come there's nothing growing there? It doesn't ever relate to him or click in him that if I'm not working now, then I'm not going to get something later. That it's just not going to be provided for me. The next thing is, is I have the word absurd, but basically they make absurd excuses. Some absurd excuses that you may hear in the British um, stand is, you know what? I'm unemployed. But it's, and I know in order to get my benefits, I need to go to the job center, but it's just too much work to go to the job center. So it seems almost absurd is that all you have to do is go to the job center to apply for jobs to get more money, but that's just too much work to actually go and do that. Um, other things is that you may hear as far as that, um, I wrote down some other things. Um, oh, the, what the slugger said is that there's a line outside. I'll be killed if I go in the streets, so I can't go in the streets. So the idea is that the sluggard's making absurd excuses. And the last one, this little section here, is that they're just irresponsible. And the sluggard says, I pass by the field of a sluggard. By, um, it, a sluggard doesn't take care of their responsibilities. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw and considered it, I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come to you like a robber and want like an armed man. So there's a couple of principles just to point out about this is that you can learn by principle in the first two, six and, um, verses six and eight. Um, and it's basically a saying, look at the ants. The ants are working hard. They don't have a leader but they are still working. And what happens is there's get up and go with ants. With the sluggard, they have no get up and go. They don't see the need whatsoever. Um, the second thing is that ants, even though they don't have a leader, they know 
basically is work now because it's going to pay dividends in the future. Um, the sluggard doesn't see that. And then learn by experience. Because the slugger hadn't done that, then the slugger basically, the problem the slugger has is just um, not aware of time. That the ant works, 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 and, and does sleep, but the slugger's just always busy sleeping. I'll get around to it, I'll get around to it. And the result is, is that the slugger's gonna end up in poverty. It's gonna be like someone has come and stolen um, his stuff. Our time is up. But let me go ahead and close with this. The solution to all this, the solution when it comes to whatever our attitude when it comes to work, um, whether we feel like we're the sluggard and we're lazy or we're like the ant, is the, is the gospel. That we need to realize that God has made you. That God deeply desires that relationship with each and every one of us. That God has made you with a purpose and incredible gifts. Sometimes what we do is this. We start comparing ourselves to other people. So I think, you know what? I'm not as talented as Jess. Jess can do this. Jess can do that. Just why can't I be like Jess? Instead of saying, God, thank you for making me me. You know what? I'm not Jess. I don't have those talents. I don't have those gifts. What gifts do I have? It could be one of those things saying, okay, God, I know you're a God of work. I lack that. Help me. And the way it happens is this. It's not behavior modification. It's internal change. It's one of those things saying, God, change me from the inside out. On a commentary on Proverbs, this guy named Bob, we'll call him Bob, he said, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lost men and women from parasites to producers, from those who take from others to those who give sacrificially to meet the needs of the helpless. The gospel turns a man's or woman's attention from himself to others. The way to cure the sluggard is to make a saint of him. The way our deepest need is not what job we have or to feel wanted. Our deepest need is a relationship with Christ. So I don't know where you are in your profession. I don't know where you are with your calling. I don't know where you are in your spirituality. But let me encourage you to look at who God is. Look who the person identity of Jesus. That Jesus is, I am the way, the truth, the life. And you can know this creator God the creator who made everything, who made you. And he deeply wants that relationship with you. And he loves you too much to leave you the way you are, but to help change you into what you can be. You know what? Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love. I thank you, Father God, that you, have, that you are God of work and that you have asked us to be co-laborers. Father God, help us not to be lazy in that, but help us to join in with you. Help us to see that no matter what we do, it can be for your glory. I pray that you'll change us from our own looking at ourselves to that we are looking how we can serve you. May we be reflections of who you are. Father God, I pray if you want us to change our jobs, that you'll, that you'll show us and call us into that. And I think you're our calling that you're calling our lives is the same for us to know you and to make you know. I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ, because the name of Jesus is everything on the earth, in the earth, and below the earth will bow. Amen.